Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. How are you today? Hello, Russ. I'm doing great. Good. No new pictures except the the rocket's gone. The rocket's gone. It was time to to move on. So it got erased. Yeah. It flew off. Yeah. <laughs> it flew off and it's gone. And today we have Yvonne and the She Shed. I'm Yvonne, here. I don't know how much talking Yvonne's going to do versus how much talking the She Shed's going to do. But. Uh, the She Shed has an opinion about everything. <laughs> Me, on the other hand, I have zero opinions about anything. <laughs> and from Austin, Texas, today we are joined by Josh Stevens. All right, Josh, you got to tell us a little bit about yourself um, so that people kind of know who you are because you've not been on the pod- on the hedge before anyway. You said you have your own podcast, so maybe people know you from that. Well, hello. It's nice to meet everyone. Uh, as you said, my name is Josh Stevens. I'm a local tech founder and investor here in Austin, Texas. Uh, maybe most well-known for being part of the founding team at SolarWinds. Uh, where I was there for many, many years from uh, ideation all the way through the IPO. And now today I'm the CTO and, and I lead product strategy at Backbox. Uh, we're a network automation uh, player headquartered in Dallas, Texas with R&D in Tel Aviv, Israel. Oh, oh that's kind of cool. So you're in Austin and the headquarters building is in Dallas, which is not as close as people might think. And then... Uh... <laughs> And then Tel Aviv, which is quite far away, actually, for most people. So cool. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I had these friends over from Europe, and they were in California, at uh, in San Jose, someplace or another, I don't know, Juniper, Cisco, what it was. They were at some building, and we were visiting around, and one of them said, hey, we're going to go to Disney World. And I said, okay, that's cool. And I said, do you mean Disneyland? And they said, no, Disney World, we're going to the one in Florida, because it's bigger. And I'm like, cool. How are you getting there? They said, well, we've been to the car. (laughs) (laughs) Three days later. (laughs) (laughs) Like when you live in France, it's just, or Belgium or whatever, distances just don't, they just don't compute in the U.S. It's a different thing. It's what we call a scale problem. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it doesn't look much bigger on the map, but trust me, it is. So that was pretty funny. So, yeah. So, um, so Black Box went out and did this report or this survey on network operations and security, which was really kind of cool. Caught my eye. I thought it was really interesting. So I thought it'd be good to have a conversation around operations and security because, you know, these are things we don't think about. I mean, for some reason, network engineers always think of security like as this bolt on, I'm going to throw a firewall at it. And it's just going to be a solved problem. I'm going to check check the boxes on the security audit and make house security happy and I'll be done. It really doesn't work that way, honestly. So um, I guess we start here with the current approach to network automation. I was actually quite surprised that 5% of the people you surveyed still come back with 5% of auto- manual configuration. Does that surprise you, Tom? No. No. Is it too low or is it too high? Uh, I I was surprised that it was that low, actually, at 5%. I would have expected it to be higher, but. Hmm. 
And we prefer to build our own tools and scripts, which is interesting because, I mean, a lot of big companies do, but it's not a lot of small companies that build their own tools and scripts. Most small companies tend to buy a product. And by the way, Tom, I think the second one there, we have some configuration management tools, but have not implemented network automation platform. That, I think, many people answer that. I don't know, maybe Josh has an opinion on this, but many people probably answer that, that slot because they're embarrassed at the little bit of automation they have. And so they've written a couple of Perl scripts and they consider those tools. <laughs> so they say, they say, we have some configuration management. <laughs> I, I'm curious, Josh, what uh, in this first section here, anything that surprised you that you wouldn't, was not expecting? Yeah. I mean, there are a few things that surprised me and, and, you know, this is evident when we talk to customers here at Backbox, but, um, you know, these organizations have oftentimes invested in some sort of network automation or config management tool, right? It might be a, a vendor provided tool, you know, from Cisco or Palo or Fortinet or someone, or they might have bought something that was packaged with their monitoring platform. Uh, you know, something like a solar lens where it's kind of built in. Um, but when it comes to automation, that they need to handle the things that they're being taxed with today, um, they really struggle uh, and they don't have those things in place. And I think where this has really come to head recently has been around OS updates. Um, the, the frequency and severity of the CVEs being identified by the hardware providers, firewall vendors especially, um, has gone up exponentially. And as a result, I talk to network operators every week who are saying the same thing, that they can't keep up with the updates, that they're working a lot of nights and weekends. Uh, I talk to MSPs that are frustrated that overtime's eating into their margins. I talk to enterprises that are frustrated that can't get on with more strategic work because they're, all of their spare time is spent on doing upgrades. And I think it's sort of caused them to say, wait a minute, you know, we made these investments in these other tools. We had lofty aspirations as it relates to programmability and network automation. Um, but we didn't even conquer some of the basic use cases like reliable backups and upgrades. So let's back up and let's find a solution that can make that stuff easy. And that's when we get called in usually. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's to the point that it's actually people feel like it's eating into their profit margins. Now I get the, I, that's a little more unexpected to me than the, I'm always trying to fix stuff because that is so common in network engineering. I mean, I almost feel like sometimes we build stuff to be fragile so that we'll still have a job in five years. Uh, Cause the amount of stuff that we do, that's crazy and not thinking through the, the ultimate end point of where we're going with this stuff and um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Yvonne has something. She's it's right there on the top of her head. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, you know me well. Uh, uh, so uh, first of all, like in in most enterprise organizations, just getting change windows to do these kinds of upgrades, like there are more upgrades to do than there are allowed change window hours. That's in right. Here, I imagine. And and I've worked in large, complex organizations where you may get an actual, you know, an hour outage window in a year. Right. And a lot of this goes back to like fundamentally how we have thought about how we build networks 
over the last several decades because we haven't at the vendor level taken a programmatic approach, right? I mean, so I just honestly, this morning I updated 30 apps on my iPhone and I didn't even know it, right? I hit a button, they update my, and my phone just keeps on chugging. We have not built infrastructure that to work that way. And I think that that is part of the challenge that we face is the, the, the demands on the system are exceeding the, the, the way we built the system to function initially. And so we're, you know, as an industry, we're still trying to figure out how to do that. We're we're actually, I think we almost got spoiled with downtime with maintenance windows. When we, when we first started building networks, we got to this point where we're like, well, we'll just do a maintenance window. It just won't be that, that bad of a thing. And so we didn't build networks for like canary life cycle, um, Chaos, chaos engineering, all of that stuff. We didn't build any of that stuff in. Um, you know, we build a network to have enough resiliency. So if a single link fails, we're okay. But we don't build a network with enough resiliency that if we take an entire pod, most people can't even name what a pod is in their data center fabrics or a plane of their core. Most people don't have planes in their cores. They just have network and they've just built it that way. You know, we can't even name what these units of work are, and we don't even know how to replace one, and we've not designed the network to be able to replace one of these things while leaving things up and running. Like, it's it's crazy how close to the edge we often run. And yet, on the other side, our links aren't that heavily utilized. Like there's, there's not as much traffic as we make out, and yet the network just isn't designed to support on the fly, which is weird to me. Well, I think that, you know, part of what's happened is that over the last 20 years, um, you know, if you, if you think back to the old days when we were all getting started, we really resisted change on the network at, at all costs, right? And typically, we would upgrade iOS on, a, on our core router or a firewall, you know, a couple of times a year when you really needed to. Um, and so the trend has been changing with regards to how often you would need to do upgrades and why you would do the updates. Now they're almost always driven by security vulnerabilities. At the same time, the reliability of networks as a whole has been going up substantially over the last several years. And I think that the heritage of resisting change and the inheritance of more reliable networks has allowed us to relax and not necessarily build in networks that allow for easy resiliency during these types of upgrades. Now, an automation platform like ours that can do work flowing and pre and post checks, you know, you can reroute traffic to a secondary connection and validate that and do all of your upgrades programmatically so that hopefully there is no downtime. But as you described, not all networks are engineered in such a way that you have that option. Um, so I think that's something that a lot of us are are designing into tomorrow's networks. I think that that we have a lot of new plans around that. One of the things I see happening now in many cases are remote power and console managers that have uh, LTE or 5G cards in them. So you have an out-of-band telemetry network that you can use for upgrades if needed. So I think I think those things are improving. Um, but you know, the survey pointed out very clearly that. At large, 
organizations feel like they need to be able to do much more change than they're able to do today. And they're frustrated with the tools they have, the lack of management support. And that's causing a lot of people to abandon their own privately built, you know, Python heavy script libraries and oftentimes open source uh, network automation platforms as well and move more towards something that's off the shelf and a little easier for sure for for basic operations functions you know automated backup and restore you know via api automated upgrades closed loop with some sort of vulnerability intelligence built in you know as avon said it's really tricky to get change windows for these devices so making sure that you can maximize the number of upgrades that you can do during the window reliably is also a big part of success. Well, and part of what we've seen in, in um, you know, SRE movement, you talk about uh, DevOps and, and, and the way folks deploy code now is, you know, the, the goal is to deploy, deploy code any time of day, whenever you need to, continuous deployment, right? Um, we have just not even conceived of networks that way. But ultimately, until we start thinking that way, like how do we be able to make changes any time of day? How are we how are we going to be able to make updates whenever we need to in a way that, frankly, gives the where the business is confident that we can do it without impacting operations like that? That's that's really where we need to set our sights as an industry, as opposed to like how do I add a VLAN to all my switches without having to touch each of them manually? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it, we need to up-level the way that we're thinking about, about yeah. all of that. Yeah. We need to, we need to wean ourselves off of the, off of the, the maintenance window. Like that's, that's enough with the maintenance window. I mean, you need to build your network so that you don't have a maintenance window because if, if what you're saying is right, Josh, in this survey, people are frustrated because they don't have enough time in their maintenance windows to do upgrades just for security. Well, how many breaches are there and how many business operations problems are there just because nobody's upgrading? And that's really dumb. I mean, you're taking on a lot of risk in your, in your company because I know breaches, a breach can take a small company down like completely, like you could be gone as a company. Well, two data points from the survey. So 92% of network professionals surveyed said, that they have no more updates to do on their network than they can possibly handle. And almost 60% said that their company has experienced a breach due to an already known vulnerability. So they had the notification, they knew it was an issue, they had planned to do an upgrade at some point in the future, but between when they knew it was an issue and when they got the upgrade done, they were breached and the breach was caused by the, the CVE that they hadn't patched. Those two data points together are enough to tell us that we should be investing in closed loop, fully automated upgrades. We, we should not have to worry about when our devices are upgraded. That should be on autopilot. Now, I, I, as a network engineer, that's not one of the things I want to spend my time thinking about. Maybe once a day, I want to look at a schedule and say, oh, those are the 2000 upgrades planned for tonight. Yeah, that looks right. Go ahead and go. Please text me if there's a problem. Otherwise, I'll read the report when I wake up. That's about all I want to know about upgrades. Um, and in a in a in a small network with you know all brand new uh, internet connected you know Palo Alto firewalls using their automated backend, you can automate some of that built in. Someday 
the physical network and the virtual network devices that operate like the legacy network will be doing that. They will upgrade themselves just as simple as the apps on Yvonne's iPhone. But we've got a few years between here and there. And it's really important that when you implement a network automation platform, ours or whomever's, uh, that you think about these use cases because upgrades are the kind of thing that can steal a lot of your schedule. And I don't want to donate any more of my nights and weekends for the rest of my life to network upgrades. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's as much designed, by the way, as it is vendor-driven side stuff, as far as I'm concerned. That's right. Um, We don't do a very good job of it at all, unfortunately. So, yeah. So was there anything else surprising or I don't know, is there something like, was there some other result that you were like, wow, I never would have thought of that? Yeah, there are a few things that that kind of caught me off guard with this. You know, number one, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that 62%, so over half said that their leadership team prioritizes spending on prevention over response. And that surprised me because it seems like when I talk to organizations, they spend a lot of time and money on on instant response and building out a SOC and, and thinking through those things. But sometimes maybe not as much money as I think they should spend on prevention. And by prevention, I think I mean things like automated upgrades and patches and vulnerability management, all the things that you do to hopefully avoid the breach so you don't have to deal with incident response. Um, so that was surprising. Uh, based upon what I see actually talking to customers, I was surprised that number was not much lower, below half. Um, the other thing that really got me was that 80% cited distrust and skepticism or as barriers to deploying network automation. And I think that's unfortunate because um, we have an ultra-reliable product that our customers really rely on to run their businesses. And so to find out that the other people using everybody else's products don't feel that way was surprising. I, I would have thought that, you know, look, if, if you don't trust your automation platform, you should get rid of it. I mean, why are you still have it? Uh, why, why would you even have something in-house that you're going to trust to go make changes to your infrastructure when you're not looking if you don't trust that thing that's making the changes? So it just seemed illogical to me that people are persevering with a platform they don't trust. And I think maybe that's why we're seeing such an influx right now of people coming to us and asking for help is that they've that with the economy the way it is, I think a lot of companies are just, just saying, you know what? Uh, Uncle, I, I, I give in. All this work we're doing with our Python team to build custom build automation and, and do a fully programmable net DevOps thing. Yes, that's probably the, the right path long term. But my gosh, can't you just take some of these things off my plate first? Like backups and restores and upgrades and config compliance and CIS automation and remediation. Um, that, that's the key here. And we see this anytime the economy does a stutter step like this. You see companies and IT teams, you know, downsize grandiose projects into more tactical projects and say, look, can we get something that that we can see our ROI on within 90 days or 30 days and not a year from now? So I that's, think those things were yeah. were things that surprised me. That's actually interesting. So Tom, I know you've faced situations like that. I'm very curious, like, is, have you or Vaughn or, or John, Tom face this thing where, but well, the economy's bad. So I need to start thinking about like doing something where I'm getting return on investment right now. Mm, 
I haven't worked in a profit center at a, at a downturn in the economy yet. It just has, hasn't lined up. Mostly I've worked in cost centers and it's never really been a part of the conversation, probably just the timing of my own career. Usually when it's like we things are bad and we can't hire people, it's usually for me, it's a less do, do more with less sort of scenario. And so that's usually takes the form of cut projects and Hopefully the thing that that burns your nights and weekends isn't the thing that, you know, the thing that keeps you from burning your nights and weekends. Hopefully that's not the one that got cut, <laughs> but sometimes there's a disconnect there. That's, that's very interesting, actually. Yeah. I mean, well, now that's another thing entirely, right? Is that we still consider the network IT to be a cost center. And I've always thought that that was like strange to me that we are so focused on it being a cost center. I don't know. I guess I should let Yvonne answer first because I don't know if Yvonne had any different answer than Tom does. Well, I mean, I think that there are so many things that have changed. And, and yeah, a lot of orgs like that. Any, anything that falls in the IT operations category is, is considered a, a cost center. But I, and, and I very much relate to the, you know, do, do more with less. At the same time, the demands on infrastructure just continue to increase like the uptime demands. I mean, I talked to customers also who, you know, they, they, they built a core platform for their business 30 years ago. And that core platform worked for an organization that was eight to five and they could, you know, Monday through Friday, but now the expectations are different. Right. And it needs to run nights and weekends and it needs to be real time and not batch like like that's this is not just a networking problem but it certainly is is a networking problem as well i think it's something that that the industry as as a whole is facing i was looking at the data though this question what what do you not like about your company's current approach to network automation um and i want to go back to this trust conversation because i also see i, I think we inherently like to believe that putting a human in the loop is more trustworthy than not having a human in the loop. But what we've learned is that actually, whether it's data integrity and we're running that data through an ETL pipeline and we're processing it and we're going back and and updating the system uh, from a programmatic standpoint, or whether it's networking, if you can build a system to do it for you, it is going to be more reliable. And I think that we have this hurdle where we think if I artisanally craft it, if I put my hands on it, if I look at it as a human being, I can trust those changes more than allowing a system to do it. That is not true. Now, Humans can make things that are more beautiful if you really want to talk about things that are artisanally crafted, right? But that's not that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about keeping an operational network up 24-7. Right? And so I think that trust conversation is super important. Why can't you trust the system? What do you need to take out so that you can trust it? What what is going wrong? And 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 I, I wish there were some questions in here about human error, right? Because I think most of the time when we see issues, outages, the vast majority of the time, there is a human error component. I think that's the other thing that we need to consider as, as part of this conversation is how do we how do we remove the human error? I saw a stat from EMA recently that 80% of network outages based upon their research were caused by human error. 
uh, you know, typo config. And I don't know if you guys remember about maybe a month or six weeks ago, Microsoft had a big WAN outage that affected uh, several of their of their service offerings. And it was uh, a configuration error. And I think it was OSPF related, if I remember what they what the root cause was. But they had uh, four hours uh, of downtime on the WAN that, that affected critical services. Wow, you know, four hours on a giant network like that. But it happens. And the, the other catch with doing changes by hand is sometimes they're hard to back out. They're hard to locate, you know, who changed what, when. It's it's tricky. So we always recommend, you know, when you implement an automation platform, not only do you automate whatever you can, but from that point forward, you do all of your manual changes from there as well. That way, there's a secure audit trail, there's immutable logs, there's video recording, even. Then then also that becomes, you know, a pipeline for future automation that you might do. Look at the things. Well, what are the things we're doing by hand the most often? Okay, put that in the pipeline for development for next week. Well, and the other thing. Sorry, Tom, go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. Well, I, no, I was just going to add the other thing that you've got is you've taken all that that you've learned about how to run and operate your system, and you've taken that knowledge and put it into a system that you can build on later, right? So you don't have your top tier engineer uh, win the lottery or get hit by a bus, pick your analogy, right? And then disappear with all that institutional knowledge. So if, if you're if you're automating it, you have a system, all of that knowledge is in the system and can be not just reused, but leveraged, like built upon, right? As opposed to, oh, we call Joe when that breaks, right? I, I have a little a little theory about where some of this distrust comes from. I'm I'm curious what you guys think. From what I've seen, I've I've seen a couple of times where people they decide they need to automate and they say, okay, well, the new wave is this, I, I need to learn code. I need to learn all these things. And so a network engineer starts to, to, to do that and, and props to them for, for seeing reality and trying to adapt. I, I think, I think network engineers deserve more credit than they get, but, but anyway, so they start building these solutions. And part of the reason is that you, once, once your thing works at small scale, you deploy it at large scale and it works for a little while and then it breaks horribly. And then your own, you, you've created your own trauma <laughs> because you're not a professional software developer. And, and it becomes really like, once you've seen the inside of software, you can't unsee it. Like, it, and that's Sausage what all factory. software is. What's that? What's Sausage that, right? factory. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what all software is like. But if you've not worked in software your whole career, you see the inside of that thing and it is terrifying. And, and I think part of the, and the other thing is if you're a network engineer, who's just doing the best you can. You don't think about the things that will make this successful because you don't know, like error handling. The big thing that I see network engineers stumble on and just don't act, they, they're just not aware of it, is how do you do proper error handling in your program? And if you don't know how to do error handling and you upgrade a bunch of sites and, and 10 of the routers are down because you didn't know how to anticipate errors and handle them, that's pretty traumatic. That adds to your load. And then you're like, this just made me take the whole weekend. If I'd done it manually, it would have been, it would have been five hours. I'm done with this. Like, and yeah. I'm done with all software. Like I've seen that attitude before, like yeah. all this is garbage and I just don't want it. And, and I, I don't know. I, I think that a, a proper understanding of how software is supposed to make our life better, I think would, would help us a lot. Yeah. A proper understanding of how software actually works, what it can do and what it can't do. And that's part of the problem. We see the same thing with chat GPT, right? Everybody thinks, oh my gosh, it's going to take all the jobs. Oh, look at this. Blah, blah, blah. No. AI, software in general works great 
for very narrow use cases to solve specific problems as long as you can define the problem well. A lot of the problem in networking is not all of our problems are well-defined. Some of them are. We try to automate ones that aren't the right thing to automate because they're not well-defined, and then it fails, and then we go, well, forget this, I'm not doing anything. As far as what you were saying, Yvonne, I think that, and going back to what Tom said as well about error management, is that it is important to keep a human in the loop in the case of errors, and we don't do that either. We just don't handle errors very well. We just go, oh, there's an error, I'm just going to forget this. No. Like, it's okay if I'm automating something and once every six months I get called at two o'clock in the morning to fix something the automation system, like, didn't do right, or that it has to back out and I have to look at it again in the morning and fix it, right? We don't have that attitude. Like, it's all, it's all or nothing, and we expect, the, we expect the automation system just to work. And so, I don't know, I, I can see Josh is chomping at the bit here. He's got a couple of things to say there. No, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, one of the things that I see as a mistake is I see people try to automate the most complex changes first. Um, and, and it's tempting. You know, you have this really complex network change. Uh, in order to, to automate that change, you have to touch five different devices along the path that you're trying to, to enable. Um, that's really complex. And and while that is absolutely something that you can build in and automate and programmatically handle, where you'll save the most time and, and improve your quality of life the most is by automating the mundane work that require that takes a lot of time to accomplish. You know, those those complex changes that require artisanal perspectives and a lot of deep ingrained and earned knowledge about the network. Like there's a reason that you're in that seat. You are the expert. Don't automate your expertise. Automate the things that you'd rather not be doing anyway. Automate the things that rob you of that time so that you can focus on engineering. I want network engineers to, that buy our products to fill out a survey that says, hey, before you bought our products, how much time did you spend at the keyboard versus the whiteboard? And six months after you input or input our products, how much time did you spend? Because I want people to spend less time at the keyboard and more time at the whiteboard, more time thinking about network security, about cloud migrations, about how we're going to bridge these applications across those environments, not spending all their nights and weekends doing OS upgrades on firewalls. I really like that keyboard versus the whiteboard. That's uh, I'm going to steal that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's very definitely true. And we do, we do, we tend to jump right to, I'm going to implement this and I'm done. We don't tend to think long-term about, you know, how these things should work, what they should do. Uh, you know, it's this, and, and again, it's, 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 we don't have a coder's attitude on this stuff, right? We want to sit down and we just want to rip it out and have it done. And we somehow think that, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write some Python script and it's just going to work. And it's never going to fail. As Tom says, you know, you don't handle errors and it's never going to have a problem. And there's never going to be, need to be a backup thing. By the way, this is something I see all the time now. I am constantly amazed at the number of times in production networks that we do things without a backup plan, that we don't have a plan to just say, if I need to be 
in every situation, I need to have a, I need to have a single line of configuration I can take out that backs everything out. Like it doesn't need to be this complex, oh, I've got to disable 15 things on my router to back this out. No, there should be like, no, I can do one thing, it all backs out. We don't do that very well. I mean, honestly, we, we really stink at that kind of stuff. So I don't know. Josh, Josh may have more to say there, Tom or Yeah, I think it's I a lot of the a lot of the products that we're asked asked to build networks with don't do that well either. I mean, no. <laughs> there are not that many NOSes that can actually do things in a transactional manner and will actually let you back things out. <laughs> um, That's there right. are a few that there are a few that do it really well, but yeah. Well, hey, I, a backing I, out of an upgrade is hard, even a configuration change. I mean, it, it's funny when people ask us what we automate, and I say that the first use case is always backup and restore, and people think, oh, anyone can automate device backups and restores. <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> but 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 having right. having a, a one-click restore or a one API call restore that can recall, restore from a failed backup or a configuration change and gracefully back that out, that is not simple. And in many cases, online checkpoint firewalls, those are multiple files and it, the config may change between one version of OS versus the other version. So it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy to do it right. It's not easy to do it where you can be trusted in a way that people will know that it will it will fail gracefully if it's going to fail. But in most cases, it may fail and retry and then succeed because you've built in error handling into the application. You know, we we build those things into the platform because we're not selling to developers. Yes, there are network engineers who also have software development skills and have been trained in cybersecurity. But those of us that have all three of those skill sets, we are super, super rare. Um, most yeah. organizations, you get a, a network engineer or an admin three or four people on a team, and you don't want to write software. You you want a platform that handles the software writing part of it for you and just gives you an easy GUI for accomplishing these things. That's what we set out to do because our customers don't have time to to write their own tools. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think for, yeah. for me, this yeah. also brings up like, you know, some general like thoughts of like, what what is human capacity? And how deep can most people go? And you're right. There are a handful of people who are really deep across a lot of different domains from software development to network engineering, to security, to device administration and operations, and even some database management thrown in there. But I think one of the things, too, that we have to learn to do is not only work with peers who have skill sets different than us, but also find partners and solutions, whether those are, you know, whether those are other vendors, whether those are open source tools, whether they're online communities to augment our skill set, because the domain is of knowledge is so large, it is nearly impossible for one person, especially one person, you know, in the early stages of their career to be able to, to just know all that they need to know to execute effectively. It, it, it just, it doesn't happen, right? So we also need to, you know, collaborate and cross team and work with other people and, and solutions that help fill in the gaps. Yeah. I think there's, there's competencies that 
people have to have and competencies that organizations have to have. Right. One of the competencies that an organization has to have, especially if they, if, if, if they're not going to buy a product to do automation and they, and they aspire to do it themselves. One of the things they have to, one of the competencies the organization has to have is to figure out a way to pair people together um, the way that you're talking about. And Yvonne, if if they don't do that, then they will end up with just the same problems at much larger scale. And I think that, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, working working in a place now where we, we where we wouldn't buy an automation platform, we we do build our own stuff. Um, I think that the the human machine interface, I think sometimes is is neglected a little bit. And when I say human machine interface, I don't mean the web page or the GUI with which you push the buttons. I'm saying the relationship between the developer and the infrastructure and the and the code they're writing. You have to to go back to the issue of trust. You have to you have to teach yourself to trust the product of your hands to do this work. And then you have to understand why you can trust it. And, and you, over time, you build up this relationship with the machine sort of where you know what it'll do and what it won't do, but you have to do it one step at a time. You can't jump straight to the complicated stuff like we've been talking about. I, I don't know. I, I think there's definitely, a, obviously, there's a segment of customers that just don't want to deal with it at all. But there's also a segment of people that I think are, are halfway between just don't want to deal with it at all and just want to write all the code themselves. I don't know. Do you deal with very many people in that category, Josh? We, we do. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we've done here at Backbox is we we have a network automation team in the company that serves as that sort of software development member of our customers organization. So, you know, in a large organization, you might have some people who augment your network team who are Python developers who write automations. Our customers have said they really don't don't want to need to have that. So when they find there's an automation they need that, that's not built in the product, they call us and we build it for free as just part of the service offering. That's part of what we deliver as a network automation as a service company. So we become that trusted partner and that virtual member of the customer's team to write those automations for them and then make them first level functionality in the product. And that's kind of how they get there. Because without that, they're having to hire someone with that skill set. And they usually don't need a full-time person with that skill set. They just need a little help now and then, right? And, and so that's how we partner with them. And I think those are the types of things that innovative companies can do, whether it's a vendor like us or your MSP or whoever it is you're working with, your VAR, you know, find someone who can help deliver network automation to you more of as, as a service offering to, again, lighten that load because the whole point of automation is to to free up our time, right? To exponentially increase the amount of power that we have to make change, to get things done. So if it's not a a net positive from a a body of work that your team can accomplish through automation, then the project's a failure. Yeah. Yeah. I think this also still goes back to design though. Like we don't design our networks to be, to do like when I when I build a new design, when I'm looking at something, I actually think, how would I back this out? Not just how would I just how, not how would I just erase the configuration, but like how do I disable this functionality so the network goes back to functioning the way it was, even with all the configuration still in place? Like, just what can I do to make that happen? And I think that's um, something that we don't really think too much about. Uh, in that space. But yeah, so um, I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's anything else from the survey that anybody wanted to talk about or had uh, something you wanted to cover. Any thoughts? No, I think I think we covered it pretty well from my perspective. The full survey is available at backbox.com if anyone wants to see the results and, and read more, more details there. But 
I, all I can say is that if I, when reading this report, it seems that there's going to be a lot of effort put into network awesome automation for the, at least the next year or two, because 96% of the people said progress is impossible without automation. 92% said there's more work than we can do without automation, but al- almost none of them lack their current automation solution, nor does their leadership team trust what they put in place which says that there are a lot of people shopping, they're out looking for solutions, they're pulling back from open source frameworks in many cases because, as you said, Tom, they're being asked to do more with less. So they have, you know, they're not gonna maybe add as many people to the team as they hope to this year. So they're asking themselves, hey, how can we, how can we do more with less? How can we get more done without adding more people? And the challenge is you need a reliable automation platform that, that's easy to use at the end of the day. So yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show. Yeah. Tom, any other thoughts, questions before we wrap it? I just wonder, um, just some speculation, you know, everything goes in cycles. The business cycle does its thing. Economy does its thing. And I think to just to theorize about why people got to this place where they're pulling back from open source projects and stuff, I would assume that they have seen the sausage being made and they don't like it. And so, so that now, you know, maybe the trend will shift back towards uh, more, you know, provided platforms that somebody else built. And then eventually the cycle will come back. Someone will decide, a bunch of us will decide what we didn't like about that. And it's always, I mean, observing these transitions, the TikTok of, of history, like there's something we can learn from the last time this happened. And, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we can find some lessons there. I don't know, a little philosophical there, but that's all yeah, no, I have to say. <laughs> definitely, definitely true. So Yvonne, anything? Yeah. Well, my only final thought is it would be an interesting thought experiment to read through the survey and the questions to answer them for yourself. And then think about what those answers mean about how you need to approach your environment differently. Like, what do those things tell you about what you're doing and how you're working and maybe what changes you need to make and think through for your you know, daily work and what's going on in your environment? Yeah, I totally agree. That's a really good, that's a really good point, Yvonne. Thanks. Okay. Well, Josh, where can people get in touch with you if they want to or follow you if they want to follow what yeah. you're working on? Just backbots.com. I have a blog there. That's the easiest place to, to reach me. You can also find me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash Josh Stevens. Okay. And I, I'm hoping you'll start um, doing your podcast soon so we can all come on and yeah. hang out and talk about other stuff. My podcast is called Capital Geek and you can find it on all the podcast sites. And okay. again, my LinkedIn profile is linkedin.com slash Joshua K. Stevens. I had to look that up. I wasn't sure. Okay, <laughs> cool. You know, you can change that. Or whatever you want. Your that's my name. Program. So I think I'll leave oh, it. That's, that's fine. That's cool. <laughs> so Tom, where can people get in touch with you? Follow you? I don't know. Whatever. Twitter, LinkedIn. Just search for Tom Ammon. That's probably me that you'll find. Okay. And he'll have a picture of the something that his kid's drawn up there <laughs> <laughs> on the whiteboard. And Yvonne will just have pictures of her she shed. Uh, actually, if you follow me on Twitter right now at Sharp Network, what you're going to see is a long string of tweets about construction project progress on my new house. So Brick okay. went up this week. So super excited about that. So you can find me there on Twitter at Sharp Network or on LinkedIn at Yvonne Sharp. Awesome. I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at the head, rule11.tech, LinkedIn, I don't know, wherever. I'm pretty easy to find. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. We know your time is valuable and we're really happy that you decided to spend this however much time it was with us and uh, thanks for listening to this episode of the hedge and we will catch you next time subscribe to the hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech